As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello all, Eric Rivenis here. I appreciate your patience as I've been contemplating and finally implementing a new format for the show, one that would allow both a narrative and an interview or a discussion. There are so many interesting crime stories to tell about Minnesota, and I want to go to the experts whenever possible, but still cover subjects that haven't been covered by others, or if they have been, those people are not available to chat for various reasons. Anyway, from this point on, once a week, I will be releasing an episode each Saturday with two parts. First, a story I've researched, written, and narrated, and second, a conversation about a second story. So, I hope you like how I've structured this, and please go to the show's Facebook page, again called Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold, to leave a comment to me or to discuss the show with other listeners, and for anyone interested in seeing photographs connected to the stories told on this podcast, I post them each week when I have them on the Facebook page at about the same time I release the interview, so come on over and take a look if you're so inclined. Now on to the show. Sometime between midnight and one o'clock in the morning, on Thursday, April 13th, 1905, Mrs. Emma Klein, resident of the ground floor apartment at One Reed Court in St. Paul, was awakened from her slumber by the sound of a gunshot and a heavy thump. Mere minutes later, there was a knock on her door. When she answered, she was met by a man named William Williams, whom she knew by sight as he was a frequent visitor to her neighbors in the apartment above her, the Keller family. She had never talked to him before, however, as she'd always been afraid of him. The hallway was dark, and she couldn't see his face, but she recognized his voice as soon as he began speaking. Williams was visibly upset and talked with a fast, agitated voice about the Kellers. Much of it was unintelligible, but she was eventually able to make out a sentence that put her heart into her throat. Johnny Keller had been shot, he told her. Mrs. Klein climbed the stairs and entered the apartment. There she found her friend Mary Keller lying on the floor. 
The first thing Mrs. Keller said was, Bill has shot my boy and nearly killed me too. You take the lamp and see if my boy is dead. Mrs. Klein followed her instructions and went into an adjoining room where she saw 16-year-old Johnny in his bed, lying on his side, facing the wall. When she went closer, she was horrified to discover he was bleeding from his head. Thinking he was dead, she went back out to where Mrs. Keller lay, helped her to her chair, and waited in fear for help to arrive. Welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. This week's story is a dark tale of a disturbing love affair gone horribly wrong and one of the most badly botched executions in Minnesota history. When William Williams showed up in front of Captain Hampt, he was out of breath, having run hard from one Reed's Court to downtown St. Paul's Central Police Station. I have shot a man, and I think I killed him. We had a quarrel, he blurted out. Hampt immediately had him arrested, thrown in a cell, and a police ambulance and patrol wagon galloped off to the scene of the crime. It was a gruesome sight indeed when officers entered the Keller home. The St. Paul Globe painted a bleak and sensational picture of what met the police. Stretched out on the bed, slowly dying, was the 16-year-old boy John, the blood oozing from two ghastly wounds on the side of his head, while propped up on a chair was the mother, faint from loss of blood. On the floor in the bed were great clots of blood and a gory trail showed where the wounded woman had crawled to the kitchen after being shot. The revolver was found lying on the floor in the bedroom where the shooting occurred. Mrs. Keller and her son were hurried to the city hospital in the police ambulance. At the hospital, it was found that the boy had been shot twice, under the right ear, the ball plowing a furrow through his head the second shot penetrating the flesh under the chin of the right side and lodged in the muscles of the neck. Mrs. Williams was shot through the abdomen and in the small of the back. Mrs. Mary Keller, still conscious, told her side to reporters. Williams, she said, had come over to the house that night and demanded to speak to Johnny. Despite her protests, Williams had gone into the boy's room and spent a long time inside. At around midnight, Mrs. Keller had finally had enough and went into the room and asked that Williams leave. Williams refused to go unless Johnny came with him. Mrs. Keller was not going to allow that, and she and Williams began to argue while a drowsy Johnny fell asleep amidst their shouting. For whatever reason, Williams had been allowed to keep his personal trunk in Johnny's bedroom. And the Globe got graphic in detailing what happened after that. Before the unsuspecting mother could realize what he was about, 
Williams drew a 38 caliber revolver from under his coat and bending over the sleeping boy, placed the muzzle close to his head and fired twice. With a dying gurgle, the boy turned over on his side, the blood from his wounds spurting over the muzzle of the gun and on the hands of the assailant. The paper went on to explain that Mrs. Keller turned to run from the room, frightened and in shock and grief over her son's apparent death, but Williams turned and fired twice at her. Both shots met their mark and she fell to the floor. He stood over her and pulled the trigger a third time, but the gun misfired. From there, he ran from the apartment and to Emma Klein's home, downstairs, where he knocked on her door, notified her of what happened, and then dashed off to the police station to turn himself in. Once Williams had settled in his cell, he began napping in his cot before he was awakened by the police. For a time, he refused to say anything, but eventually... He stretched and moseyed his way over to the bars of the cell, where he gave an impromptu interview to detectives, and evidently reporters as well. My name is William Williams, he said, as reported by the Globe, and I was born in England. I am 28 years old. I met John Keller a long time ago at the city hospital when we both had diphtheria and were in the same ward. I liked the boy from the first and intended to take him away with me and educate him, but his mother would not let him go. Last summer I took John to Canada with me, but his folks made him come home. He used to write to me, but one time he wrote and said he never wanted to see me again. He wrote more letters, but his mother destroyed them, and I complained to the postal authorities. I did not get any more letters anyway. I came to St. Paul a little while ago and went to see John. His mother did not want me to come and said I was crazy and liable to hurt someone. I went to John's house at about 11 o'clock tonight and talked to him. His mother came in and said, go away from here. I was talking to her and, and, Williams at this point in his dialogue stopped and ran his hand through his hair. The next thing I knew, he continued, I was standing with a revolver in my hand. There was smoke coming out of the end and Mrs. Keller was crying. John was very still and I thought he was asleep. I thought I must have hurt someone, so I went downstairs and told the woman who lived on the first floor to go upstairs. Then I came to the police station. When someone asked him why he'd shot Johnny, he answered with a dodge. I did not shoot the boy, he said. He was the only friend I have on earth. I did not know I shot anyone. I bought the revolver in Minneapolis some time ago and kept it in my trunk. I have traveled through Canada and all parts of the United States, and I am a steam fitter. Evidently satisfied with his interview, Williams then went back to his cot, laid down, and dozed off to sleep. The reporter from the Globe was not impressed with Williams after this exchange, to say the least, and described him in unflattering terms. Williams is to all appearances a degenerate. Possessed of a pair of black beady eyes and thick lips, he presents anything but a pleasing appearance, while a low bulging forehead and large protruding ears and a peaked skull bear out the theory of the police that he is an idiot.
the Globe concluded their story with their best guess of what had transpired. The police think, they wrote, that Mrs. Keller desired to keep her son away from him, and Williams, being aware of this fact, hated her with that hate that only an insane man is capable of bearing. They think that last night he went to the Keller home with murder in his heart, but that if he had been allowed to take the boy away with him, no harm would have resulted. When the mother refused to allow her boy to go away, Williams walked deliberately to his trunk and shiftily concealing the pistol so that his mother could not see it, walked to the bed of the boy and shot him. It's probably important to point out that the word idiot had a far different meaning in 1905 than it does now. Back then, being termed an idiot was a clinical diagnosis used in psychiatric classification. Idiots were considered people of the lowest intellectual standing, with an IQ below 30. But as we shall soon find out, William Williams was far from stupid, and his suddenly weak memory about what he'd done with the gun in the Keller home was a calculated attempt to claim temporary insanity. Already planning his defense over what would no doubt be a sordid case, especially when details would emerge about the real nature of his relationship with Johnny Keller, far more intimate than the mere friendship he claimed in this jailhouse account of the ill-fated evening. Not long after arriving at the hospital, Johnny Keller died. The Minneapolis Journal from across the river weighed in on the murder. This case, it wrote, is apparently a shocking instance of masculine degeneracy, period language for homosexuality, which in 1905 was a subject avoided by regular society, if at all humanly possible. But of course, the real crime to our modern-day ears was that Johnny was only 16 and Williams a man, and it appeared from Williams' own words that the relationship had started two years before, which makes the situation even more disturbing. Add to that something far more superficial, but still head-scratching to the public, the contrast in appearance between the two whose photos were plastered side by side in the papers. Williams was coarse-looking at best, while Johnny Keller had been a fresh-faced, handsome boy. These revelations would only make the case more sensational in the eyes of Minnesota readers, eager for a scandal. Desperate for background dirt on William Williams, reporters went scrounging, and quickly came forward with a story that was a doozy. One that would help solidify the man as a villain of the worst kind. He'd been a mutineer. Seven years earlier, Minnesota had raised three volunteer regiments to fight in the Spanish-American War. While only one saw action, the famed 13th Minnesota, the other two regiments had stayed in the United States on reserve. William Williams had been a private in the 15th Minnesota, which had been stationed at Camp McKenzie in Augusta, Georgia, over the winter of 1898 and 99. During a night on the town, 
one of his fellow soldiers was beaten by a saloon keeper in a fight. When Williams and his comrades decided to get their revenge on the saloon keeper, their officers ordered them not to. Williams was furious and refused to let the situation be. Instead, he talked 70 of his fellow privates to leave camp against orders and make for the saloon in haste. Once this was discovered, the 3rd Regiment of Cavalry was ordered to stop them, and Williams, in a frenzied state, told his fellow soldiers that they should shoot anyone who impeded their plan, including the cavalry, if necessary. The officers in charge, realizing that they had a mutiny on their hands, ordered the cavalry troops to fire on Williams and his crew. The mutineers quickly understood their position, and a handful of them, under the gleam of the cold barrels aimed at them, rushed Williams and knocked him down. They all surrendered, and Williams was dragged to the guardhouse. William Williams would be court-martialed for his actions, found guilty and sentenced to six years in prison, but was later pardoned by President McKinley. But this wasn't the end of Williams's violent past. In 1900, he served a year and a half in prison for shooting an Italian man after an argument in Hibbing. But the man hadn't died and Williams was given a light sentence. More rumors abounded, including accounts by acquaintances that he'd been a deserter from the English army. Although, when asked about these things by reporters, William Williams wouldn't comment. While the newspapers seemed eager to paint Williams as an evil, immoral man, Williams did his best to defend himself and his actions. The next day, he tried to explain in more detail what he'd done the night of the murder. I thought the world of that boy, he said, and would have taken good care of him, but his folks wanted to keep me away. Wednesday afternoon, I had been drinking quite a little, but was not drunk. I went up to the Kellers about nine o'clock and was going to stay all night, but Mrs. Keller kept ragging me so much that I could not sleep. She told me that her husband was going to kill me when he came home, and that Johnny's oldest brother, who was away from home, would kill me if he ever ran across me. I had a fight at one time with Johnny's oldest brother, Fred. It was about Fred trying to beat Johnny. I would not stand for it and choked Fred until his nose bled. Mrs. Keller always said she liked me until this last time, when she seemed to hate me. While Williams languished in prison over the next weeks, the story of he and Johnny would become clearer, and it was a strange one, to put it mildly. As Williams had already confessed, he'd met Johnny when they were both suffering from diphtheria, patients together at the St. Paul City and County Hospital. Johnny, 14 at the time, had been working as a bellhop in the Windsor Hotel in St. Paul. His father, John Keller, wasn't around much. He was a cook and had to leave the city to find work, leaving Johnny and his mother alone most of the time. Once out of the hospital, Johnny, 
who had been a good boy for his parents, began ignoring their wishes and spending more time with Williams. In fact, they were inseparable, constantly at each other's sides. In 1904, Williams got a steam-fitting job in Winnipeg and took Johnny with him, despite vocal opposition from Johnny's father. But they were back just weeks later, with Williams complaining that the accommodations hadn't been good enough. It was possible, though, that there had been a different reason for their departure. They hadn't found quarters that offered enough privacy, or they'd been met by people who disapproved of their presence together. Despite the animosity John Keller had for William Williams, it didn't prevent him soon after from asking a loan from him to start a restaurant. Perhaps John Keller had learned that if he could not prevent his son from seeing Williams, at least he could squeeze some money out of the man. Back to Winnipeg, Johnny and Williams stayed for a couple of months, and then Mary Keller suddenly paid for a one-way train ticket that brought her son alone back to St. Paul. Three days later, Williams had quit his job in Winnipeg again and come back to see Johnny, but did not stay long. He accepted another job position in St. Louis, Missouri, evidently to save more money so he could take care of Johnny. Through March of 1905, Williams sent a bunch of letters to Johnny, each one getting more ominous than the next. It seemed as though Johnny was finally spurning the older man and Williams was growing frantic with worry. One letter from Williams warned, You have been playing with me long enough now, Johnny, so it is time you tried something else for a change. Keep your promise to me this time, old boy as it is your last chance. In another letter that professed his love for the boy, Williams wrote, I told you all about my past and gave you a true account of it, too. I did not think you would care for me after, but you told me then that you cared more for me than you did before. Finally, Williams had decided that Johnny was through with him for good. And feeling he had no choice, he took a train back to St. Paul and arrived at the Keller flat on April 12th, the eve of the shootings. It was a story that once pieced together shocked the city of St. Paul. And now that Johnny Keller had died from his gunshot wounds, William Williams was charged with murder in the first degree, and he pled not guilty. John Keller, father of the murdered boy, arrived back in town and went to visit his wife in the hospital, breaking down in tears at her sight. I always thought Williams was a worthless sort of fellow, he told a reporter, but I did not think he was capable of murder. My son Johnny told me at one time that Williams threatened to kill him because he would not go with Williams, but I thought the man was only trying to scare my son. As for Williams, he appeared indifferent to his circumstances in prison, eating well and conversational with visitors. If Mrs. Keller says I shot her and the boy, I will not deny it, he explained. 
but I won't admit it either. The more I think of it, the more I think I did not do it. I hope I am tried soon, as I might as well have the thing over either way. Meanwhile, after a few days in the hospital, with doctors confident of her recovery, Mary Keller died, while undergoing a surgery made necessary, papers explained, by complications arising from the bullet entering her intestines one week earlier. It would be two counts of murder, then, for William Williams. When he was told of Mrs. Keller's passing, he seemed rather indifferent. Is that so? he replied. It is too bad. The whole thing is a blank to me. I remember Mrs. Keller cursing me when I entered the house that evening, and the next thing I recollected was seeing the smoking gun in my hands. I don't think it makes things much worse for me. God knows it was bad enough before. Weeks passed as prosecutors prepared for their case against Williams, which seemed quite cut and dry. However, papers reported that Williams' attorneys had an interesting strategy. They planned to use Williams' moral degeneracy, a.k.a. homosexuality, as a primary part of their defense evidently thinking that it must have led to some kind of emotional insanity. And the jury might take pity on Williams once they learn of the true nature of his relationship with Johnny. The trial would begin on May 16th, and it would be a short one. The county attorney leading the prosecution was Thomas R. Kane, and he felt confident that he would have no problem extracting a guilty verdict out of the jury. Kane began calling his witnesses, including Mrs. Emma Klein, and the police officers and detectives who'd examined the crime scene and found the murder weapon next to the bed. Also testifying were the doctors who'd examined Johnny's body, and they told of how blackened and singed his head and neck were, evidence that he'd been shot at close range. The boy was found in his bed in a natural pose, they stated, suggesting he hadn't been moved there after he'd been shot. Then finally, they called Johnny's father, John Keller, who detailed the passionate back-and-forth relationship between the two and all of the hemming, hawing, and second-guessing Johnny had later felt about the wisdom of a relationship with the volatile man. The defense, led by Francis Clark and James Cormican, faced with an uphill battle, asked Williams to testify on his own behalf. Williams continued with the story he'd started with. He remembered everything up to the gun in his hand and then couldn't recall what happened after that until he finally looked around him, realized something bad had happened, and dashed out of the apartment for help. After confronting Mrs. Keller upon his arrival, he testified that he'd gone to bed with Johnny, but couldn't sleep because the mother was swearing and cursing at him through the door, which angered him and possibly led him to do what he couldn't remember doing. This, in essence, would be their case. In a fit of emotional insanity, he'd probably done the deed he was charged with doing, But he was also a man with mental issues, all the more obvious because of his moral degeneracy. 
The prosecution, however, during their cross-examination of Williams, produced the damning letters that Williams had written to Johnny and had them read to the court in all of their graphic detail. They'd been found beneath the sheets of Johnny's bed by the police. One letter in particular had to have produced a gasp in the courtroom. Williams had written to Johnny, If you do not come, you know what you may expect. You know that I will do it if I come. You are always a coward and a liar and could be turned this way and that way by the people about you. Williams tried to dismiss the letters by saying they had been meant for the boy's father, John Keller, instead, even evidently the love letters, which produced derisive laughter from spectators in the courtroom. The prosecution hoped to prove by the letters that there had been no temporary bout of insanity, but instead a slow and steady buildup of animosity from a scorned lover, culminating with murder. And the jury seemed to agree. Three days after the trial began, they produced their verdict guilty of murder in the first degree. When the judge asked Williams if he had anything to say, he replied, No, judge. If I am to die, it might as well be now as later. He then received a sentence. He would be hanged by the neck until dead. Williams, it was reported, stayed composed as he was given the news. After failed appeals, Williams learned the date of his execution, February 13, 1906. As he waited for his fate, Williams suddenly found faith in the Catholic Church, converting just a week and a half before he was scheduled to die. Seemingly calm now, believing he would now go to heaven, he began joking with visitors and even participated in a series of checker matches in the days and hours up to his execution. Finally, when February 13th rolled around, Williams ate his last meal, a big plate of steak and fried potatoes. Dressed in a new suit and tie, he calmly walked to the scaffold and offered his last words. Johnny Keller was the best friend he'd ever had, he said to the spectators. And then he added that he would soon be a victim of judicial murder. Then he turned to his priest and said goodbye, before the rope was slung around his neck. The sheriff released the drop at half past midnight, but what happened next would bring dismay to many who would read about it in the newspapers the next day. The rope had been six inches too long, and Williams had landed on the floor. Three deputies rushed forward to the platform when they realized what had happened, grabbed the rope, and pulled him back up. For 14 minutes, he slowly strangled to death, without the typical luxury of a snapped neck to bring instant relief. Later, it was explained that the sheriff had neglected to take basic laws of physics into account when preparing for the execution. The rope expanded eight inches when Williams dropped, and he hadn't been given enough room to fall 
All three newspapers reported all the gory details of the botched execution. Despite a law in place since 1889 that banned the mention by newspapers of anything beyond a statement that a convict was executed and the day and time it happened. Ramsey County, embarrassed by the entire situation, pursued an indictment against the papers for violating what was known as the John Day Law. After much legal wrangling, the issue made its way to the state Supreme Court, which sided with Ramsey County, stating that the law did not infringe on the overall constitutional freedom of the press, and eventually the Pioneer Press would go to trial, be found guilty, and sentenced to a fine of $25, all to make a point and bandage up the puncture wound in Ramsey County's thin skin. Nine years later, the John Day Law would be repealed. And another interesting note, the bungled hanging would be the last execution in Minnesota and ammunition for opponents of the death penalty. Five years after Williams' death, the state of Minnesota would get rid of capital punishment and judges from then until now would impose life sentences as their harshest punishments. And now on to part two of this week's episode. So I've got Christine Hill with me. She is a loyal listener to the Most Notorious podcast and has an old family murder mystery that I've asked her to come on and share with us. And she graciously agreed. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you, Eric. I'm so glad to be being asked about this. So this is an extremely personal story for you, isn't it? It sure is. Um, It started back as far as I can remember when I found this little newspaper clipping in my grandma's jewelry box. So you've got to tell us all about it. What were the contents of the clipping and how did you react when you found it? Okay, so there was a little faded newspaper clipping that said uh, Raymond Rood, cab driver, killed. um, And it was from 1935. And it was confusing to me because I knew my grandma's maiden name was Rude, but she went by R-O-O-D. And this cab driver, Raymond Rude, spelled his name R-U-U-D. And so I didn't think much of it because um, I knew my grandma was from uh, a smaller town, Grace City in North Dakota, not Grand Forks. And then um, I asked her about it some other time later, and she said, well, that was my cousin. And and then later on, when I started doing some genealogy research, I learned more about it, only to discover that, oh, my goodness, it was it was never solved. And it was just very intriguing to me and very sad. So you discover this newspaper clipping. Was there anyone to share this with? Did, did you talk to someone right away or... Or were you just researching the story on your own? I started researching it right away as part of just doing my genealogy research. And I got a lot of help from the um, North Dakota State University and the University of North Dakota. They had some great archives, and I was helped quite a bit by some of those keeper of the archives. And and they sent me some newspaper clippings from the Grand Forks Herald from back during that time. And, of course, this made the headlines 
for weeks and months and even years <laughs> afterwards. So um, as you can imagine, in small town at that time, this took over the headlines and everybody was talking about it. And I did, I was able to connect through um, doing some research on my genealogy, a cousin who, her name is Carrie Rude, and she, it, this was in like 2004, I believe, and she lives out in Washington State, and she is, let's see, her, her grandfather, Clarence, was Ray's brother. Okay, I understand. So tell me the story, or what you know of it. It was the evening of April 1st, 1935, when he was last seen, right? That's correct. And at about, he worked for the Sioux Cab Company in Grand Forks. And he had been on the job for about two weeks. And he had, he had been working every shift except for the evening shift. And this was his first time working the evening shift. And it was April 1st, 1935. So at about 9.50 p.m., Mr. Arthur Aylesworth, um, he had gotten the call to the Sioux Cab Company, and he said that a man called and asked for um, a cab to come to the back of Lucasen's beer parlor, and so he sent Ray from the shop there to go get collect that customer, and that's the last anybody saw of Ray until the n- next morning. So at about 7.15, uh, a farmer, actually he um, a young man who lived on a farm nearby, um, him and his mother were driving into town and they drove, not knowing, they drove past Ray's body at about 7.30, they're saying. And then when he dropped off his mom in town, he turned around then and was coming back in at about 8.15. That's when he noticed Ray's body in the field um, on the side of the road. And so he he pulled over and stopped, and he got out and looked. He didn't get too close. Um, and then he right away um, drove to a farmhouse nearby and called the sheriff's department. And the sheriff came out. And interestingly, there was, like, uh, I think some signals crossed. They didn't have cell phones back in 1935. <laughs> and uh, so it sounds like, you know, in the meantime, all night long they've been looking for this cab and looking for Ray's cab, even other cab companies, the notice went out, hey, we have a cab missing. Could you keep your eye out for this cab? Um, it was a tan Pontiac. And so they're all looking for this cab. And I guess a gentleman called and said, hey, he, he called the Sioux Cab Company from uh, Grand Forks. And he said, your cab is in my backyard. Could you please come and get it? And so... Um, the owner of the cab company, Mr. Brolin, went to this location in Grand Forks, went and sure enough, the cab was sitting there, but the battery was dead. In the meantime, right while that was happening, of course, the sheriff had been called and they find this body. And so Mr. Brolin is retrieving his cab in Grand Forks and actually like they're pushing it and trying to get it back to the um, Sioux Cab Company station, and so they're, you know, then they see this blood in it and stuff, and then they find out that Ray's body has been found, so they're actually manipulating this murder scene without realizing it. So do you know much about the investigation? Once the police arrived, what did they find by way of evidence, and what would the coroner ultimately determine was the cause of death? 
there was money stolen from him too, right? Yeah, they determined that he had about $11 on him. And they they initially had thought that maybe robbery was the motive, but they determined later that that was not the motive. And in fact, he still had some money on him. I think he had about $1.50 left on him. So even if they were trying to you know, rob him, why didn't they take, take all of that money? Um, and then the condition they found the body in, he was actually found on the side of the road, head down, face down, with his legs up near the um, actual road. And um, according to Sheriff Lund with the Grand Fork Sheriff's Office, he said that the man was laying in the salt ditch with his head in a, and about the bottom of the ditch and his feet up on the bank of the grade. And um, there's no marks on him except for the gash in the back of his neck, about a half inch from the bottom of his hairline. And it was a large bullet wound. And they looked in his pockets to try and find out who it was, but he didn't have any identification on him. And then by that time, that other cab, another cab driver had come up, and his name is Bobby Ferguson, and told, he was able to identify the body. Did you know much about your family's reaction to this at the time? Were any stories ever passed down? Yes. When I met my cousin Carrie, who I discussed with you, in about 2004, um, again, her, her dad, or I'm sorry, her grandfather, was Ray's um, uncle, and she was saying that it devastated the family. Um, and she did hear stories about what happened after, you know, Ray's death, and it just totally devastated the family. They were never the same since. Um, Ray's brother, Mervyn, uh, he was ended up, he, he was uh, drafted. I think he might have even just enlisted in World War II and just um, wanted to get away from everything. And he actually, Mervyn uh, struggled with alcoholism. And I think um, there are some other issues with alcoholism in the family. And it was a result of just dealing with this. And they always felt that there was something that people weren't saying about the case. And in fact, um, Mervyn was known to have gone into some of the establishments and go back to Lucasins and say, you know, and get, you know, have a few drinks and say, and start yelling, saying, I know somebody knows something. Why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't you saying something? So it, it was really traumatizing and devastating to the family. And there was actually even a note that um, my cousin Carrie found in her grandmother's belongings that um, it, was, it was like a little poem written. And I think it was at Ray's funeral and it was written by his mom. I do have that so. I could read that if you want me to. Sure, that would be nice. And it's weird because, you know, when I first learned about this, you just hear, oh, you know, another person dying and, you know, it's sad. And um, you hear people getting shot in the news all the time. And boy, when it, it's your family and, and then you start hearing stories about how it affected people and how it changed their lives and maybe they made different decisions because of what happened to their loved one. It really changes your perspective. And um, and then after seeing some of the photos of him in his casket and, and just learning more about him and about the different friendships he might have had and um, hearing testimony from his friends about what a nice guy he was, it's just very sad. He wasn't married, was he? Nope. He was 20 years old. He had been a hockey player for Central High School. 
and uh, just everybody said he was a nice guy. Didn't drink really, and uh, just a good guy. But they, you know, when you talk about motive, they wonder if he wasn't, he didn't see something he should not have seen, and um, and he, they think he probably knew who did it. Otherwise, why would he have been killed? And I truly do have that note. Here it is. In loving memory of our beloved son and brother Ray, who was slain by some cruel unknown hand on April 1st, 1935. None knew how sad the parting was, not what this farewell cost. But God and his loved angels have gained what we have lost, ever remembered by Mr. and Mrs. E.A. Rood and family. Oh, that's very moving. So yeah. this, yeah, this note looks like it was written by his mom. So how did the police proceed with the investigation? They don't really have a lot to go on, do they? They don't. And what I find interesting is they obviously, you know, like I was saying, this was in the papers. It was, um, it wasn't a big town at that time. And everybody was talking about this and knew about it. And, um, and they, tried to find the person who made that phone call asking for a cab. And when I've been thinking about it, if I was the person who made that phone call and then I learned in the paper the next day or I heard that that um, cab who was coming up to answer my call and pick me up, um, I would report and say, you know, hey, that was me who made that phone call. And yes, Mr. Rood, you know, drove me to my destination or he never showed up but they never found out who made that phone call. So that tells me that I'm wondering if that person who made the phone call was involved somehow. But you're right, they did have, they had a fingerprint that was on the, um, they ruled out all these other fingerprints and they did have a fingerprint that was on the rear view mirror that they determined must have been the killer's fingerprint, but they never did find the killer. They had a few leads, like even in later years, um, there was a gentleman who said that I, I think he was, um, I think he was in a jail somewhere and he said something about that he would kill or he, he, somebody got in an altercation with a cab driver and said, I'll kill you just like the other cab driver. Well, of course, you know, they had heard about this murder. And so they interviewed that suspect, took some samples of the blood that they found on this suspect's jacket and I think they sent to the University of Minnesota but they were they they ruled him out did your family ever have their own suspicions about who might have murdered Ray well interestingly uh, I learned from my cousin Carrie that um, her her grandma Minnie who again was married to her grandpa Clarence who was Ray's brother um, they, after Minnie died and Clarence had been dead for many years, and this was in 2004, when they were going through Minnie's house and clearing things out, they found taped to the, the um, desk drawer a note that it was typed up affidavit, nothing formal, like it was from a police station or anything, but it was a typed up affidavit that said, I, Irene Lee Crawford, swear that I did kill Raymond Rood on April 1st, 1935 in Grand Forks. It wasn't signed. It was just this typewritten affidavit. 
And so Carrie sent it to me. I was just blown away by getting this information from my cousin. And, um, and so I started wondering, well, who is this Irene Crawford? And so I started going on Ancestry.com and, and just looking up some information wherever I could find. I wrote to some places and, and I did find an Irene Crawford. And she fit the age that it could have been a young woman in Grand Forks at the time. And interestingly, I recently got a little bit more curious about an Irene Crawford who I found um, who lived in Grand Forks at the time. There is an Irene Crawford who was about 28 at the time of Ray's death. And she is listed as at when she was 23 in about 1930, she's listed as being a maid in the household of a Harry Griffith. And um, he was married and, and had a couple of children, and she was working as a maid in his house in Grand Forks. And then, uh, and then in 1934, she's listed in a directory as a, a waiter, or must, like a waitress in town. And she's at an apartment, it looks like, on her own. And... Then I don't see anything else about her until about 1956. She showed up, but what's connected to her is somebody by a different name, and it's somebody by the name of Marlene Crawford. And a Marlene Crawford with the same parents from North Dakota, the same parents as Irene Crawford, same date of birth, everything, um, this Marlene Crawford married a gentleman named um, Mr. Shippey in Spokane, Washington. So I hear, you know, there's nothing else about her until 1956. And I just think that's very curious. And it is also curious that um, Minnie and Clarence Rood are living in the Spokane area during that time. And they're the ones who had that affidavit. That affidavit is so strange. The fact that your family was so suspicious of her that they wrote that up in anticipation of some kind of confrontation with her and, and make her sign this. It sounds like they were convinced that she was the one. Do you have any idea what, what this relationship between Irene and Ray might have been? Was she a girlfriend of his? Um, obviously, at least an acquaintance. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think that might have been their intention at some time. And what was her involvement? It's hard to know. I mean, would it be, as, is it as extreme as saying that she actually did it? Um, I don't know. You know, they also talked about, you know, in these news reports from the 1935 had so many different leads. And, and they did mention, I think in the coroner's report that at the time at Lucasens there were some, young ladies who were calling doing April Fool's jokes uh, from the bar at that time. Was she one of these young ladies who was doing that? And I don't know. I don't know. So what is the status of this case now? Is it open? Is it a cold case? Is it currently being handled by the sheriff's department or the police department? Have you talked to law enforcement about this in recent years? You know, about 10 years ago, I did go up and talk to um, a police officer up in Grand Forks. Um, I believe he was the chief of police up there. And unfortunately, back in 1997, when they had that terrible flood up there, all of the old records were for the 
cold cases were kept in the basement of the courthouse. And unfortunately, they all were flooded and destroyed. So that kind of ended that um, possibility of reopening this case, which I guess even after so many years, you can request some of these cold cases to be open. If you're a family member, you can request that. But uh, he talked to me and he said, unfortunately, the evidence is all destroyed and we just can't do that. For um, our family's sake and I guess, you know, my own curiosity and um, just for Ray, I feel like I'm the only one who is really looking into this. And there's still enough, um, enough hope, I guess, just to find something. And maybe even people hearing this podcast will get curious and, and start asking questions. Somebody knows something and somebody got away with murder back in 1935 and it's just not right. And it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. I, I mean, if if it was Irene Crawford, maybe she confessed something to someone. This information might have been passed down. I mean, if she'd felt any guilt at all about any possible role in this murder. And I guess I'm assuming she was a part of this, although I shouldn't because it may not have anything to do with her. But it appears to be the best lead you have right now. Anyway, it would have been quite a, a thing to be involved in this, whoever it was, and not say anything about it to anyone. Exactly. And, you know, even even if in your later years you want to get something off your chest, you might say something. And I've even tried to reach out to some of Ray's friends who are mentioned um, throughout the reports. And it's, it's kind of hard even now. And that's why I'm hoping when people hear this podcast and I can share it with some of these people, they'll understand that, you know, I'm not some crazy person trying to contact them about a murder from 88 years ago. Um, I've tried to reach out to some family members and, you know, they're not quite sure how to make of some crazy person calling them and asking them questions about what their dad might have said. Because um, one of one of his one of Ray's best friends, unfortunately, just passed away four years ago and in Princeton, Minnesota, which was very near me. And I just wish I would have been on this sooner and I could have somehow went and talked to him. Well, for anyone who has any information or would like to help you with this, you could definitely contact me through my website at mostnotorious.com. But is there any way they could connect with you directly? Uh, maybe an email address? Sure. They can contact me at wordrx at msn.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your story with us. Thank you, Eric. And I just love your show. Everybody's got to listen to your podcasts. They're addicting. Thank you. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. And Pearsons, please, we love you. Bring back the 7-Up Bar. <laughs>